This is part two of a two-part podcast with Dr. Seth Montague, Director of Nutrition at Sioux Nation Ag Center on feed testing. Hi, folks, and welcome to the Sioux Nation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jake Geis. Joining us today on the program again is Dr. Seth Montague. He's the Director of Nutrition here at Sioux Nation Ag Center. Thank you once again, Seth, for taking the time to stop and talk with us about feed testing. Afternoon, Jake. So before we talked about actually getting feed samples to do a feed test with, now we get these feed tests back. There's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of letters. We kind of know what some of these things mean, but we might not always know what these mean. What are we really garnering from a feed test and what's the best things for a person to be able to look at in order to get a general idea of the quality of the feed stuff that was just tested? Yeah, I guess there's two different ways to think about it. So one is we've got a sample and we've got some results. This is what we have. I guess it's always informative, but it's more of a, here's a guidance to where to go. So forage samples, we're testing before we make a ration. We get the results back. Now that guides how we decide to feed our animals. Or the other end of it is validation more. We've got a feed sample. We just want to make sure what we did was correct. And that what got mixed actually was what we were hoping we were feeding. That's like the two main sources of information off the sample. So based upon what we're seeing with the different values that we have on that page, then we can get to the answer that we're looking for based upon one of those two questions. What were we really looking to answer? We want to kind of talk about what those numbers mean. Mm -hmm. And so I want to step back and talk about like the actual lab testing. There's a lot of, I don't know if I want to call it misinformation, I think it just misunderstood mm-hmm. of what the numbers are and what actually happens when you send the feed sample in. It's not just run it through a magic machine and get numbers spit out. Right. So we've got these feed samples we took and we mail them to the lab and the lab gets them and you're getting a trace mineral panel. On average, there's five to 12 different trace minerals on there you might test for. And so whatever... Test you chose or told them to run, you, they'll separate the sample into equal amounts based on how many grams or milligrams of sample they need to test for that. And then they're going to run a standard. And that's the most important part is here's our known. Well, you can use copper as an easy example. They've got a vial of pure copper in solution. They know exactly the concentration. They'll run that, make sure the machine's working. It spits out the exact concentration the bottle says. Now we run our sample afterwards. That gives you a reference point. So there's a lot that's going on there. And those actual techniques are dictated by AOAC numbers, which is just a a committee that comes together and says, this method has been approved for. And you fill in the blank with whatever vitamin, mineral, nutrient you want to test for. And most testing companies, Dairyland, AgriLabs, Midwest, New Jersey Labs, Eurofin, somewhere on your analysis, it tells you next to the nutrient you're testing for, here is the AOAC number. Mm-hmm. You can go on AOAC's website, or if you purchase their book, they supply a manual every year. It will tell you the methodology used to test that. Mm-hmm. And Lots of times you get tests back from different labs and they use different because every nutrient has a different or a series of different tests you can run. You always want to make sure when you compare, you're comparing the same method because they will all give you different results. So there's a lot going on in the background at the lab before you even see your analysis. They're choosing that method, they're running the test, Mm -hmm. and then they're supplying you with results. Yeah, I'm sure they're choosing the method that works for the type of test they normally get because that would be the most logical thing for them to do. Right, usually based on 
whatever machinery they have because mm-hmm. different methods are approved for different machineries. So then the lab gets this, they run their standard, they now run your sample. And just out of curiosity, you know, the process of running the sample, let's, let's just pick something in particular. Let's pick silage, for example. What's that going to look like? How are they going to run this sample? How's this machine going to do its job? It's funny, most people don't realize, even on a, like a ground feed sample, they grind it again. They take a little coffee grinder and they, they just nuke that thing in there. It's, mm-hmm. you, they get it as fine as you can. And it, I always think of silage when I do that because I've watched them grind silage and sometimes it could be very difficult depending on the moisture content. But mm-hmm. yeah, they'll take that thing and they'll pulverize it. And then, you know, there's solutions added and they dissolve it and they'll run it through. HPLCs become pretty mainstream now that it's hard to describe unless you've seen an HPL machine, but, you know, runs through a column and get a result in the end. The computer screen spits you out an answer. There we go. That's where the magic happens <laughs> yeah, that's at that the point. Magic. But that grinding process needs to happen in order for it to be basically small enough, right? It's, in Gr- essence. Grinding and dissolving are the two biggest steps in between you sending the sample and you getting a result. Sure. Okay. That would also harken back to that you want to make sure when you do send the sample, you've, you haven't shaken anything out when you've put it in the bag, because everything's going to get to be pretty small and almost dust-like by the time it goes through. Right. And even every step of this process is an error step. What they take out of the bag of sample you send them. If they don't take a good enough portion of that out to run their samples, there's a mistake. If when they grind it, they leave something in the bottom of the grinder. If they don't pull it all out and remix it and then take a sample from it, there's a mistake. Loading it into the machine's a mistake. There are a lot of, and, and these people in the labs are good, don't get me wrong. It's, we can trust what gets sent as results for the most part, but it's, there's a lot of human and lab error that can occur. They have to be very methodical and very particular, and they are. We wouldn't get good results, so they are very methodical and particular, but it is a, a very regimented process in order to get good results, true results, back to you. It all comes back to those AOAC numbers. It's been standardized. Mm-hmm. You know, they all, everyone's supposed to follow the same procedures so that you get repeatable answers. So with that, we now know how this sample is handled and kind of how they standardize the sample so that we can know what, what it stacks up against, what it actually, what it registers as, as our sample here. What does it mean when I've got that piece of paper in front of me? And it's say let's let's take a number that like protein for example. What am I getting here? What what is this telling me? If if I'm a very novice person looking at this, what am I learning from that? Most of your results are just averages. Sure. So you've got a crude protein number on there, and let's just say fourteen percent. Just having a number to talk about. What that means is, on average, because all the samples should have been run in duplicate, between those two samples, your protein is somewhere in the range of fourteen. Now, that's what the computer or the machine told them, but there's also a variance on all those numbers. And I think for me, and you too, went out on somebody's farm trying to talk about, well, this is what we saw and we should adjust things based on this. It's hard Mm -hmm. because you see that 14 number and it's they think it's 14, which you can make that assumption, but then you have to remember the range on protein somewhere 5% either direction. So it could have been, and it's 5% of that number, not sure. We're not from 11 to 19. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're, there's a 5% variation on protein. So it's whatever 5% of 14 is, but let's just say it's a 13 to a 15 range. Sure. And that can make a lot of difference. Whether you're deciding it's 13 or 15% protein, nutrition's a law of averages. You know, sometimes you're just going to have to go with what it says on the piece of paper. The hard ones, 
our vitamins. Because that's not a big number that has a 5% variation. That's a really small number that's got a 5% variation. E is a culprit in monogastrics. Let's say finishing feed for pigs is supposed to be 10 to 12 IUs per pound. That's a pretty low number. But the test for vitamin E variation is like 15 to 20%. So you run into these issues and same with vitamin A for cattle. You know, you know where you want it to be and you get the test back and you see it's about 30% of where it's supposed to be. Well, vitamin A's range can be 30%. So it's hard to explain. And best example I have for it to prove people that it's in there and the, the test and the analysis aren't wrong. It's just, we have this built in because Everything in chemistry interacts with each other. So something got bound during the test and we've lost some sample or it was a bad sample. But you go out and if you got mineral or ground feed, you take some in your hand and you shake it around a little bit. And the easiest one to look for is copper. Little blue specks. So if you got an analysis that comes back and says you don't have any copper in your feed, go out there and look at your feed because you'll know if it's in there or not. If you take a second handful, do the same thing and count your little blue specks out of it, I can guarantee you they are going to be vastly different. You might have two that you can see in your left hand, and there might be 12 you can see in your right hand. So it's it's hard. Not everything stays mixed up perfectly. You're not always going to pull the exact parts per million of something every time you, you take a sample. So I, I think understanding that what you think you're going to see on the lab test and what you get don't have to be the same as mm-hmm. long as you know what you're looking for and ask the right questions. This is off a lot from what we expected. Why is that? Or can you explain why there's such a large variation? And maybe that helps track back to bad sampling or mm-hmm. you call and ask the lab to rerun it. And eventually you figure out what's really going on. Sure. So really when you're, you're looking at this sample, it's strongly encouraged that you don't just look at it on your own without a little bit of help with interpretation, even if you're pretty darn adept at it. You would be really behoove you to look at these samples with the help of a nutritionist to understand exactly what you're looking at. Definitely encourage people to discuss it with them mm-hmm. Yeah, before jumping to any conclusions. The first thing I do on these analysis anyway, is anything on here correct? Well, if one of them's correct... And you're buying a pack from, you know, there's either a vitamin pack or anything that you're buying from a supplier. If one of them's correct and the other ones are kind of off, they're up and down, you can't really tell, they're probably all correct. This is assuming that your supplier mixed everything correctly. Yep. But you're really just looking for that one, aha, this is right. I feel safe. I, Mm -hmm. I feel like what I got is accurate. And then what happens if none of them are correct? Well, you better just start asking a lot of questions. Then we start asking the questions, (laughs) (laughs) which is good because, I mean, a lot of times if you're looking for that, that's how you find out whether or not you've you've got the right thing going on. Because, I mean, obviously with your being more of a monogastric and, and I eat monogastrics, I think their bacon's delicious. But other than that, I don't deal with them a whole lot. You know, you kind of look for things a little bit differently, I, I would say, too, depending on what species you're looking at. It's obviously all important, mm-hmm. but yeah, we're we're looking for key things that are different. Um, I did want to comment that make sure you always check your lot numbers. Yeah. Because we do find you get lots of orders of things, and the number one reason we see tests that come back incorrect is because somebody had one bag of a previous lot with degraded vitamins in it that mm-hmm. was probably like, you know, 18 months old. 
And that just happened to be the one bag out of the stack of 10 that got the sample taken out of it. And it happens. Well, I think that's a good comment, even though it's a little bit off of our current topic, but it's probably a good one while we're talking about this is these vitamins have a shelf life and storage plays a factor in that. It's longer than everybody thinks it is. As a feed manufacturer, have to have Mm -hmm. some kind of safety factor for ourselves too, but you know, depending on what else is mixed with it, if you don't have lots of hydroscopic ingredients, mm-hmm. you keep moisture out of it, you keep it cool, you know, vitamins can last a long time. You have to think about how long it is between when they're manufactured and when you actually feed them. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking a year to two years on some of these. And then, you know, say they sit at your feed supplier for three months and then you've got them sitting at your place for a month. Most of the time, they're still good. Mm -hmm. But where we really run into problems is during the summer and everything degrades because it gets hot and it gets humid. Keeping those in mind, you know, rotating stock, these are all items that make feed tests come back and get you nervous. And of course, my mind on the cattle and the bag that sat in the back of your pickup outside for the past three months might have some issues. It might have got a little rain on it. Yeah, that does come to mind, so... I wanted to touch on that topic, just as you were saying, you you can have, and I think that too, that's another thing as you move away from the vitamins and minerals, like you're talking about just your your general feed stuffs, like your energy, your protein levels, whatnot in in your general feeds, just how that is stored changes. Uh, Do you ever come back and feel like you need to run another test if you've been feeding a feed for quite a long period of time and you've had some changes that happen? Is that a good idea? All the time. There's nothing wrong with more testing. In the grand scheme of it, testing feed is relatively inexpensive Mm -hmm. with regards to everything else you're doing on farm. It -hmm. costs very little and, you know, preventing one little mistake or preventing from overfeeding one nutrient because you got that test that shows you exactly what you got is worth it all the time. Well, Seth, this has been a pretty enlightening conversation. It just shows how many different nuances that go in with a feed test, not just how we can interpret what we get for results, but just how the feed test itself is run. So really appreciate you stopping by, taking the time to explain this to our listening audience. Yeah, appreciate it, Jake. Look forward to coming back. Sounds great. Will do. And thank you to our listening audience for stopping by the podcast. Y'all take care, folks.